Welcome to Radio BX, the podcast of the Building Energy Exchange, where we discuss sustainability and energy efficiency in the built environment. This year, the theme of Radio BX is Made in New York, the people, projects, and policies that represent the cutting edge in New York's movement to decarbonize buildings. A natural extension of our core mission to foster dialogue among the entire community that impacts the performance of buildings, Radio BX is made possible through the generous support of our 2022 sponsor, National Grid. I'm your host, Yatza Frank, and I'll be talking with leaders who are driving positive change across the country and abroad. So stay engaged and join the conversation each month with some of the most compelling people in our field. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Radio BX. I'm Yatza Frank from the Building Energy Exchange, and we are very honored to be joined today by Carlton Brown. Carlton is the founding partner and principal for direct investment development, but is probably more widely known as one of the primary innovators of the green building movement in the United States. I first came to know of Carlton's work when he was leading full-spectrum development, developing such widely known projects as 1400 Fifth Avenue, Uh, I think the first LEED certified condominium in Harlem and one of the earliest affordable housing projects anywhere to pursue LEED certification and the Kalahari also in Harlem which was LEED gold certified and provided below market rent for almost half of the units. Carlton uh, has developed over a thousand dwelling units of mixed income and affordable housing in emerging urban markets and we are delighted to have him with us today. Carlton Brown, welcome to Radio BX. Thanks for welcoming me here. I'm happy to be here to talk with you today. Great. So, Carlton, I kind of want to go back to the beginning. You studied architecture at Princeton. I'm curious what led you to architecture, why you chose that course of study. You know, I'm from the South, so it's hard for me to tell a short story, but I want to try to do it, right? So, I grew up in Mississippi. My parents moved there um, in 1957 to teach at Jackson State and work in the Civil Rights Movement. Um, And so I guess I was seven when we moved there. And when we first moved there, the house we were going to live in wasn't ready yet. And so we stayed with the Robinsons. And there was this woman named Miss Ora D. Robinson. And she was a teacher. And at night, she used to go down to Laurel, Mississippi, and teach people literacy, trying to get them to register to vote. And so one day, we were out in the yard playing football with some more kids. And I was singing this song, I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a heck of an engineer. (laughs) And someone, some adult, I can't remember, said, well, um, you know you can't go to Georgia Tech because Negroes or colored people or whatever couldn't go there at the time. And so, unfortunately, he said that in earshot of Mrs. Ora D. Robinson, right? <laughs> and so he gave her, she gave him a few choice words, and she said that I could do and be anything I wanted to do, right? And he said, and she asked me, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to build bridges between people, right? And ultimately, you know, years later, I ended up in the School of Architecture studying architecture because I wanted to build things that brought people together because I grew up and my parents moved there intentionally to a place where people were not together at all. And that's what they worked on and the adults around them worked on. And I wanted to work on that in my own way. And I thought architecture might be the path. That's amazing. So 
when you when you left architecture school, did you have a sense about what kind of work you wanted to do as an architect, and and how did that lead? How did you end up coming to development? Um, when I left architecture school, I had no idea what architecture was. Right, architecture at Princeton University was you know sort of conceptual, big picture, big thought stuff. You know. I remember when I decided definitely I was going to go into the architecture department. Um, I was taking a course, I guess maybe my sophomore year, and the dean of the school actually taught introduction to architecture, right? And so he and I were talking, and he said, well, Buckminster Fuller is going to be here doing a lecture. I had no idea who Buckminster Fuller was. He says, you should come. And so I came, and like, bam, it just... If you know who Bucky was and, you know, his whole notion about the environment and resources and how do ones build and how do you conserve the earth, you know, it, you know as an 18-year-old, <laughs> it was, it was kind of mind-blowing, right? And so that's, you know, what actually led me to major um, to get into the School of Architecture. And so it was big ideas, big thoughts like that that were taught in the School of Architecture get out, go to work for an architect. Um, the grad partnership in Newark, New Jersey, which at the time was a pretty large firm, but I got out during, I guess, the oil crisis, right? And it was a big office and every day someone else was let go. And it was the most boring work that I could, I could imagine, right? No big ideas, you know, drawing bathroom <laughs> details, you know? drawing window flashing details. It's just like, wow, this is nothing like what I thought it was gonna be. And there was, there was a guy, you know, guy a few years older than me, Tracy somebody, used to come in every couple of weeks, he'd look at the drawings and say, change this, change this, change that, and then he'd go away. And I'm like, so I'm, next time Tracy comes in, I'm going to ask him, what does he do? So he came in. I'm like, Tracy, we need to have lunch. He says, sure. What, what, do you, what are we going to talk about? Like, well, we had lunch. I'm like, what is your job called? What do you do? He says, well, I work in the asset management group of AT&T. I'm like, okay. That's like the phone company. What, what does that have to do with this? And he says, well, you know, AT&T is the largest um, real estate owner in the country. Um, because at that time, it was just one big mob bell. I'm like, yeah, but what do you do there? He says, yeah, asset management. I lease property. I manage the development of buildings. I, you know, finance stuff. I'm like, let me try that, you know, because <laughs> I, had, I said, this will get me closer to what I wanted to do. And so uh, I literally went to the employment office. And, you know, there was no internet. There, were, there wasn't even fax machines then. So everything was kind of slow. Telephone calls, letters, back and forth, blah, 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 blah. Ultimately, I got a job. And I worked there 11 years, you know, in asset management, ultimately um, running a division, right? And I left there um, just as they were breaking up the phone company. I went up to head a group. Um, that was building um, high-tech research facilities as a spinoff from Bell Labs, a company called Bell Communications Research. And we were designing and building state-of-the-art research facilities, a lot of it for low-temperature physics and stuff. Hmm. 
and things where you had to have really exacting environments on air quality and temperature and humidity. Um, and everyone was concerned about long-term operating costs at AT&T generally because they had so many buildings. And so when I was working there, I was introduced to building science, right? Yeah. Um, building science wasn't a big thing in the real estate industry. <laughs> it was for AT&T because they had so many buildings. And for them, a building was, an, was not an asset. It was a liability. The only thing they wanted a building to do was stay at the right temperature and stay dry to keep their equipment operating, right? Yeah. And so that was it. Um, and so when I left there, uh, I said I, I wanted to do affordable housing. And so I started working on that here in New York. And I had the same mindset that I should take building science, right, and apply it to housing because that was 19, probably 86. And you, when you said building science and housing in New York, people just like, what is this guy talking about, <laughs> you know? And so that's what kind of led me to start doing what I was doing, what I had been doing and what I'd learned about, not in architecture school, right? Well, maybe it's sort of a combination of things. What I started to think about in architecture school, but really learn more about the science of it, you know, on the job at AT&T. Yeah. And as you started to work on development and focusing on affordable housing, when did the sustainability component become sort of central to you? How did that move into your work? Just uh, on day one, you know. Um, and the first things we were doing, um, we were trying to work as a general contractor on some stuff, the Bradhurst Urban Renewal Plan or something like that. And the city gave us a set of drawings and they said okay this is what you're going to build and I went to the drawings I'm like this is not what we should be building right, right. and <laughs> and little did I know the workings of city government so I'm like let me go tell them <laughs> what we should be building and that was not well received you know it was like this is what we always do I'm like this is a really poor performing building the insulation's not in the right place. There's no vapor barrier. You're going to have mold in the walls. We would never, like, you know, they just, it, was, it wasn't a thing. And so, um, we, obviously, we did that. We did that building. And then the New York City Housing Partnership, about that same time, had a program that they were going to be, I've forgotten what it was called. It was something. But they were building these two-family homes, right? And everyone, you know, was like what they did is they built, um, they, you know, built plank on bearing wall and the edge of the plank was exposed and it was like a radiator yeah. and it was just like really bad design, but easy to build. Yeah. Um, and so we got designated to build uh, the first project it was probably only about 12 houses, right? And so we said, okay, so we're going to use SIP panels. And they said, what is that? And we explained to them it was permitted in the code. And they were like, well, no one does that. That's not the way you do that. That's not the way we do it. You're just young. You don't understand this business. I'm like, no, I've really managed much larger projects than this. He says, and one person I remember that worked at HPD and said, well, 
Maybe you should think, rethink this and start out as a carpenter so you can really <laughs> this is, you, you can't wow. make up stories wow. like this. I'm like, no, I'm not going to. So we did that. We ended up not doing set panels because it was too much, just too much of a hassle. So we ended up doing a stick bit building but having double walls on the front and the rear. Um, and we ended up putting um, radiant heating in the floor. And then right across the street, another developer was doing, you know, a building and they, he did the plank and blah, blah, blah. And so um, we, um, one of the owner, homeowners came and said, well, Mr. Brown, you, you need to come, you know, see about a house because it's a problem that the heat just never runs. He's like, oh. Okay, so we send a guy out there with a sling psychometer, you know, to see if the temperature is right and humidity is right. Perfectly okay. And he says, well, I'm like, well, are you comfortable? He says, yeah, but my boiler just never runs. And my neighbor's boiler is running all the time. And I'm like, well, you know, that's a good thing. He says, no, my boiler should be running. I'm like, ask your neighbor how much he's paying for his heating bill. And he goes and talks to him. Now compare it to yours, you know. He says, oh, oh, <laughs> I, I get this, right? And so it was little things like that. Just, yeah. you know, there was, there was no U.S. Green Building Council rating system for buildings or anything like that. But it was just fundamental basic building science. This wasn't complexity. I mean, you know, it, this was just simple. It didn't cost any more to build that way. It might have cost less, you know. Um, but people just weren't used to doing that because how people learn to build, most people to build houses build it traditionally because they learn to do it from their father, grandfather, yep. uncle, aunt, cousin, somebody. And most people at that time that were building houses never studied architecture or building science, you know, sure. maybe architecture, but not building science because at that time, building science wasn't even part of the curriculum in a school of architecture. That was just... That was, <laughs> that was at least, yeah, and, and that's very different now, you know, but yeah. then it was kind of uncommon. And as your development work obviously grew, I mean, you, you were talking about a project that was maybe 12 units or something mm. like that. Mm. Then you go on to build, you know, things the size of the Kalahari and 1400 Fifth Avenue. Mm -hmm. As those teams grow... Uh, did you find it difficult to kind of implement these ideas about your, your focus on building science and, and the sort of your building focus on sustainability? Over time, it has generally gotten much, much, much easier. I remember so clearly on 1400 Fifth when we were working on that, which how we even came about doing that building. Again, it was an RFP with the city. Um, and at the time, we had another development out in Brownsville that we'd been designated with, much larger, one of those two family things, and we decided we absolutely are going to do SIP panels on this one, you mm -hmm. know. Um, and we got designated for this site, and it was supposed to be in the RFP, it was some sort of retail program, so it was supposed to be a one-story retail building. And so that's what we said we were going to do when we submitted the RFP. <laughs> um, 
but that's not what we did when we submitted the drawings and the people at the city got upset. You said you're going to do one thing, blah, 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 a lot of pushing and tugging. We got to the Harlem politicians and they supported us and so the sure. city said, okay, we're going to let you do this, but they took our project from us in, <laughs> in, um, in, um, in um, Brownsville, like no big deal. And so we started working on that project and at that time, you know, we were really focused on how, trying to think about what we were going to do. The thing that really pushed the lever on that was when we went to Con Ed, they said they didn't have enough high-pressure gas service to provide boilers there, right? Interesting. And so the city said, and that's why we said you could only do a one-story retail building or townhouses, right? I'm like, that's not a problem. I don't need a boiler. <laughs> and that's how we ended going to ground source heat pumps, et cetera, et cetera. And so it sort of evolved. Part of it was in response to the absence of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, and part of it was because it was that course that we were on that did that. So now we're talking to architects, you know, uh, and engineers. So I had an engineer, first engineer, we just, parted ways because he was like this geothermal stuff, you know, ground source heat pumps, it doesn't work. And I said, well, you know, look, I've spent time traveling to Germany and to Switzerland and all sorts of places just trying to see how they build because everyone, well, at the time, and still Europeans, you know, especially Northern Europeans were a good deal more advanced than thinking about how does a building work? Their energy cost was so high, the climate was, was, was tougher, you know, and so they were just, the collective reality said, we've got to do this thing differently. And so a lot of people in the early green building movement here in the States, we went abroad to see like, what is everybody else doing, <laughs> you know? Um, but when it came to affordable housing, that's not what people did. People said, I'm going to get this cheap, done, quick, and fast, in a hurry, which I found that the largest contradiction that you would build underperforming housing for the poorest segment of the economy. That was just like, that it just makes no sense. No, no. Um, yeah. As you're beginning to develop these projects that are using innovative systems uh, in innovative ways, did you, did you have other people from other development companies coming to you like, Carl, Mr. Brown, how are you doing this? How is this well, happening? Well, yeah, there were a few people that, and actually for, for 1400 on 5th, you know, that was just so different from what everyone had done before. I mean, people were coming from all over the country to see this because, first of all, there was this notion that you couldn't do high-performance buildings for affordable housing. You just couldn't do that. Second notion is you couldn't sell condominiums in Harlem. Third notion is you couldn't do mixed income housing any place. You know, we, we kind of take it for granted, but it, because now there's a, the city has lots of mixed income finance programs, then there was no such thing, right? There was no such thing as a sustainably built multifamily affordable building. It was like, what, what planet? What planet? <laughs> did you come from, you know? Uh, and so a lot of people from all around 
literally the country, a few from Europe came to see it. And as, as the city, particularly HPD, kind of saw the attention the building was getting, um, and we're like, well, maybe there's something to this, right? And so a couple of builders, you know, um, that I know, less less Bluestone was one of them that said, hey, look, you know, Carlton, I think there's something to this thing you're doing here. And obviously less is just gone, gone run a long ways with that, right? So less is one that stands out um, that I recall um there were there were some that, a couple people that worked for me at the time uh Karim Hudson who was a project manager that runs Genesis he sort of got got the joke in doing high performance building has his own company now um and there were others but the ones i remember best was certainly Les Bluestone cuz Les is an interesting character brilliant guy and just but low key just kind of <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, there are other developed builders, and I think the other one was, uh, I guess, L&M, yeah, because the, we did um, the Kalahari in a partnership with L&M, and when we started working on that, you know, that was, we submitted a proposal saying we were going to do this high-performance building, and Ron was like, <sighs> <laughs> <laughs> not know. so sure. Yeah, not <laughs> so sure. Um, but Richard Weinstock, who works with them, who at that time ran their whole sort of construction operations, Richard completely got it. He was totally on top of it, right? And so if you look at L&M's work before the Kalahari and look at it since then, you'll see it's completely different, yeah. you know? Um, so I think the work we did with them and certainly influenced the way they think about building now because I mean they're they're doing really amazing work they are as far as I'm concerned <laughs> you know you must be so proud of all of those relationships and how they've kind of you know flourished yeah, this sort yeah. of ripple effect yeah and, and that's and that's what the idea is you want to do work that um, can be replicated, you know, so that other people, because you, you can never do this work. The, there's so much work that needs to be done and you can never do it yourself, right? And the only way you can make it work is other people have to see that it's replicable, right? And then that's when it starts to grow, you know, um, which is one of the things I think that um, was a really good thing about USGBC, you know, they, if nothing else, they have been amazing storytellers, right? Um, the rating system, sometimes I wonder about all of that, but that's okay. The, I think the most important thing is they've been able to tell the story in cogent ways that people understand it. They can understand that it's not, there aren't these huge capital differentials you have to pay to build high performance buildings. And I think, you know, that, um, that, is, that has been a big game changer also. Definitely, definitely. And they, they also, they helped us all find our tribe in a yeah, way. Yeah, right, that's true, that's true. So Carlton, you must also have experienced as, as a black man running a development company in the decades that we're talking about, you must have experienced a fair amount of prejudice uh, through this, this yeah. period. And I, I wonder, 
uh, you know, you know, you obviously haven't let that hold you back in any way, which is incredible. Uh, and I wonder if you, if you have a sense about how it's changing and, and what more we could be doing as a community to help it move more in, in a direction of, of equity? Um, well, I think you were spot on that it has changed. It wasn't always the way it is now, right? Um, and I think the change is is really quite recent, you know, and this, and, and you know, I think um, not, just, not just in this space, the development space, but in a whole lot of places where there's now discussion of equity, right? Prior to the murder of George Floyd, you know, over and over and over again on, on every form of media, 24 hours a day, anytime you pick up your phone, prior to COVID when suddenly everyone that was probably otherwise too busy to pay any attention was now sitting at home looking at their, you know, media feed, you know, over and over again. And I think it gave people a chance to exhale, right? Because I, th I think one of the things about the sort of <laughs> the past more normatives, <laughs> if, if that's what you want to call it, life is, we never had a chance to exhale and sit down and think about what's going on because we were so task-oriented. I got this thing to do, I got this thing to do. Well, that moment in time gave people a chance to exhale. And I think fundamentally, um, I think the, the, what is that, Martin Luther King? The arc of the universe t tilts toward justice, right? And I think, I, I, you know, I kind of believe that. Um, that's the normative arc, if you give it a chance to tilt that way. And I think um, during this period, suddenly equity became a big discussion. You know, I've been pretty active in the Urban Land Institute, which is the, the whitest, malest, you know, organization that you could ever find, you know. And so one day, you know, I see an email from somebody, you know, there, the ULI, North America head, you know, whatever. And something equity this, equity that. I'm like, well, that's bizarre because that's not something this organization is about. Then suddenly, all these people I know in ULI, they started sending think that they didn't say enough, it doesn't mean this. And I'm like, uh, aren't you upset? I'm like, eh, not really, because the course for change isn't at the organization, it's in the member companies, right? And so when the member companies, you know, if we can get the organization to get the member companies, you know, to start changing the way they work. And the way that really works is for those member companies to mentor people, et cetera, et cetera, then the next hurdle is capital, right? And so one of the things that I think has changed dramatically um, with this equity discussion is um, the capital markets that open up to I mean, have opened up and they're looking for developers like myself, right? And it used to be just like, <laughs> who are you and what are you doing, you know? And so I think um, that sort of pressure um, has made capital uh, more accessible, right? And I think there's never been a talent gap, you know, but there's always been this inability to raise the capital that you need to execute your ideas. And I think, I mean, the last two years has just been a rapid change. What, what, what I want to know or what I wonder about is how long will it last, A, 
and B, how well um, will companies do in terms of taking advantage of it and growing to the next stage, right? And so we're, we're working in Atlanta right now. We have some fairly large projects in Atlanta, right? Um, and Atlanta, in terms of African-American developers in, in this space, was light years ahead of New York, and it goes back to when Maynard Jackson <laughs> was the first African-American mayor, and, and Atlanta was like right on the verge of that great expansion being driven by the airport, which was in construction. And he said, stopping the projects, we're not spending another dime on this. I want to see some African-Americans participate in this, right? And they stopped it, and then finally one said, okay. <laughs> Someone screamed, uncle, okay. And so the African-American businesses, for the most part, took advantage of that. I guess that was in the late 70s, early 80s, right? Most of those have grown and have a tremendous amount of capacity because they took advantage of the moment, right? Because the moment doesn't always last forever. It's a moment, right? And so the proof of the pudding is how well, how effectively do businesses take advantage of this opportunity because it just, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's life, you know, nothing lasts forever. And so um, I'm, I'm expecting, you know, people to really take advantage and build capacity, you know, with it. So I think it is a change um, that uh, is good. And we'll make a big difference. It's great. Um, it's great. I mean, I do think, you know, one of the th ways that this moment maybe has been different from moments in the past when people paid attention to these uh, equity issues is that they were, in some cases, pretty quickly embedded into policy that isn't going anywhere. Mm -hmm. So we have, you know, the state has the CLCPA. Mm -hmm. There's this 40% requirement that mm -hmm. that be targeted at, at disadvantaged communities. There's a few things like that that make, again, kind of bake in the moment. M for more institutionalized, term. yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I hope, um, that my hope is that that helps kind of extend this to, uh, to make sure the impact is is real and you, you know and, and I think you know I think the really important thing that uh, you know I'm I'm anxious to see if the triggers start to get pulled on the deals right but the largest capital providers you know are saying they're going to do something I mean things black Blackstone you know. Um, uh, Nuveen, TIAA, you know, um, you know, just all, all these, I mean, the people that, I mean, and those institutions are the people that really drive the economy, right? Um, and so all of them are making some sort of commitments and putting a dollar sign on how much it is, et cetera. And I just want to see how those dollars hit the road, you know, and, and do they have the impact that I hope they do. Um, because, I mean, we were talking with, um, I guess, Truist Bank, you know, and Truist is a merger between two banks, I don't know. I can't even remember the two banks they were, but they are southeastern banks, right? And he has, as a result of their um, CRA commitment, which was part of the merger, they have $60 billion they're supposed to put into community development in the southeast and so we met with them giving them a whole lot of suggestions <laughs> <about> <laughs> what you could do you know um 
And if, if you think about this, you know, particularly in this affordable housing business, the way you leverage investment, right? That kind of money can go a long, long ways in terms of changing the fabric of communities and changing the fabric of companies so that they're more colorful, you know, that are changing that fabric. So I, I think the next three to four years, you'll start to see what is really going to become of this. And I'm anxious to see that. I think there's a lot of folks that are obviously excited about this, this investment in these communities, but there's also um, probably some trepidation because in the past, a lot of times when capital floods into these neighborhoods, it, it leads to increases in rents and, and you know, what, you know, what we call gentrification for lack of a better term. So wondering what you think the role is of development companies in, in ensuring that they mitigate those kinds of impacts? Well, I'm, I'm real clear for our company, and I, 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 anytime I can talk to corner someone on an elevator or, you know, any place, uh, I tell them about it, right? And so there, there's this thing that based on past experience is, quite frankly, if you see new investment in a disinvested community, the expectation is people who have been long-term stakeholders are going to lose their stakeholdership. I mean, that's not conceptual. That's real, you know. And you can label it gentrification or you can label it any, any number of things. It really doesn't matter. It's just the fact that it moves one group of people in and another group out. And, and so that model is, is, is predicated on the notion of scarcity, right? That the resources in this community are scarce, right? And so therefore, um, it's not enough for both of us. It's just sorry to tell you that you got to go right i don't really believe in the scarcity model you know i think there you know i think and i think globally or universally i think the the sort of planet the is is sort of divided people that believe in the scarcity model and those that don't um those that believe in the scarcity model believe we need to hoard resources you know i need to get as much as i can for me and my crew, my tribe, whatever it is, and we'll put it away as more than we can use, but you never can tell, and so <laughs> what you're gonna do. And so I think in our business, we, we've come to define it as creating restorative human settlement, right? And it says, these sort of principles say that they aren't based on scarcity, right? But they're based on the notion of, first of all, um, do no harm, and uh, a Zulu word, Ubuntu, right, about you, <clears throat> I am because you are. We have this sort of collective humanity, and in that sense, we're responsible for each other. And so if you start with that sort of premise, right, you can work down to you can develop strategies where there aren't winners and losers, we can all win. And so in our work, um, we are really focused on that, um, and we learned a lot of this, you know, here in New York. And, and I think, I'll give you an example, the Kalahari, right? We, we learned some things about that. Um, one of the things that we, that we have there um, is street squash. Now, yeah, we have affordable housing that, 
you know, I think it goes down to 80% of median and then up to, you know, 50% of it is at, I've forgotten what the numbers, then the rest is at market rate. But still, you weren't going to house everyone in Harlem in that, you know, just, that's what's going to happen. But could you make that building have fingers that reach out, right? Could you make that building be like an open door as opposed to a closed door? And the answer is yes. And so how do we think about the open door? The open door is we have an organization called Street Squash there. And what Street Squash does, it reaches out to kids that are in underperforming public schools, living in public housing, that someone had sort of prescribed that you're going to be a teenage dropout, you're going to be a teenage mom, oh, God, you're going to die from drugs, you're crime, prison, blah, 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 blah all these crazy urban morbidity scenarios, right? Well, kids that come through that program, which just look like the profile of kids living in Harlem, right? They have like a 98% graduation from high school and about a 95% enrollment and graduation from college, right? And why? Because it's an intervention with a group of people that care about them. It, on the surface, it looks like it's about squash, a non-traditional sport, but at its core, it's really about building self-confidence, providing academic enrichment, and taking them around out of Harlem to show them a world that they never knew existed, right? And once they see that and, they, and you help them get the tools to get it, you can let them go because they're on their own, right? And so that's one of the things that, I, you know, a sort of social, sociology word, you know, opportunity structures, right? How do you invest in communities and at the same time create opportunity structures? So we are now really intentional in how we create opportunity structures, right? And it can be around education, it can be around job development. Um, so it's more than just affordable housing. Um, so all our projects are looking at those sort of things and we're doing some really exciting things right now. We are creating some of those opportunity structures that will be worker-owned co-ops. We, um, we are working with, in Atlanta, we are doing a food um, accelerator incubator that will take people with whatever skills they have and help them get into the food industry. Some in food trucks, some working in restaurants, some in their own business. But it's a low barrier to entry, you know, because we have these cooperatively owned kitchens in the project, right? We're working with another group, um, Gangsters to Growers, that won a um, James Beard Award um, two years ago, a year ago. And they, it's a reentry program. They take young kids who have been in prison, um, they bring them, they grow food, and they make an artisanal hot sauce, right? Well. We've integrated them in terms of space, community garden, um, and running, working with us on the food incubator, right? We have another group um, that we're doing um, that is doing, what is, what is she doing? She's doing, well, she, she does two things. She has pre-K to first grade um, early childhood education program that teaches using arts, science, and math. Um, and what happens with the hair program that she'd been running to scale, all the best public and private schools kind of come bid on her kids, you know, 
to come there. And so we're helping her expand. We figured out a way to use new market tax credits, provide a below market cost base, get a little bit of public subsidy, et cetera, and make that part of the development. And so just thinking about things, you know, what can you do at that early end around education and well-being, you know, that's inclusive? Um, how can we do housing so that the housing is, is inclusive? So the housing that we're doing there, as well as in Minneapolis, um, it is 20% of the housing is the households that earn no more than 40% of the median income. 20% is the households that earn between 60 and 80. 20% is for households that earn between 80 and 120, and 40% is market rate. And so you get this whole spread of incomes, right? And we think that if we include the opportunity structures there and, and we're effective at meeting people where they are and, and filling that skill asset, those people that are living in the low-income housing should get greater skills and four or five years later, they shouldn't be eligible for it, right? Because right now, hmm. the way all this 9% tax credit housing and all this work, it says, you're gonna be poor forever and you're gonna stay there, right? Um, that's what it says to me, right? And I, don't, I, just, I just think the possibilities for human development are a lot greater than that. And so I think when you start with that, with that notion that a you're going to provide housing across the economic spectrum right you're going to provide those sort of resources that can help people um, grow and you're going to do things that they actually share in the financial interests of the neighborhood so if the food accelerator does well um, because it's community owned they do well one of the things we we're talking with um, truist bank about is we're trying to do a community REIT. Now, the problem with community REIT is that there's no one that's going to be an accredited investor in that community, right? But, you know, True has $60 billion to invest. Why don't you take $10 million and use it as a credit enhancement, right? And let people in this community put in $10 a week or $20 a week or whatever it is but they get the full advantage because I got to go get some equity from someplace anyhow. Why not get it from a community REIT so that as the value of this thing grows, it grows with them. They can eventually pay it off and nothing else but on the value creation, but it keeps them stakeholders in the sense that they are participating in the value. And so just trying to think about creative ideas for how do you address the issue that you raise. Um, we don't know the answer yet, but we're looking. It's great. I mean, uh, it's so impressive that you're embedding this stuff into development projects because when you talk to most people about development projects, all you hear is, is well, about a different kind of scarcity. Yeah. I don't have enough money to do heat pumps or better windows <laughs> or, you know, all these little fine-grained things yeah. that they feel like their, their lending institutions won't let them spend money on, and somehow you're able to embed all of these other programs that I don't think your banks are asking you to, to no, develop these programs. No, so it's very impressive that you're able to push this through. Is that just because you are so committed to this? Uh, or have you found the right financial partners? Or? Uh, it's some combination of things. The right financial partners, I'm committed to it. And I 
think that when you say financial partners, I think you have to stretch the notion of who your financial partners are. And so traditionally, in when you just talk about affordable housing, you know, it's a public-private partnership, you know, three Ps, right? Well, there's another P that's left out of that is philanthropy, right? And so what we're doing is trying to develop four P projects, right, where philanthropy is there. And philanthropy can fill some of those missing gaps that neither the public nor the private sector can do. And so you can get very creative and do that, right? Street squash, the gap is philanthropy, you know? Um, some other things we're working on, the gap is philanthropy, right? And so I think um, solutions can be elusive as long as you look at the same palette you've looked at before. Why not expand the palette, right? And guess what? There's more than black and white and gray on the palette. You know, there's a rainbow <laughs> out there. And, and this isn't to say it's easy to figure out. You have to keep, you know, messing with it till you get it to where you want it to be. But I'm just pretty, you're probably talking to one of the world's greatest optimists. <laughs> right? No. I love to hear it. <laughs> so I, I think it can be done. And what I really hope is that we can do it successfully and in the same way, I think we changed the thinking about sustainable buildings or green buildings and affordable housing. We can think, change the way people think about neighborhoods and investment that is not this, you know, you or I, but not both of us concept. And so that's what we're really eager to prove at this point or figure out, you know. That's great. Well, we started this conversation talking about your desire to build bridges between people yeah. when you were a kid. And I have to say, it seems like you have grown up to, to do a lot of that, a lot of that. It's amazing to hear that you wanted that at such a young age and yeah. that you've been able to fulfill so much of that. You also uh, name-checked Bucky Fuller, and he famously has uh, Call Me Trim Tab yeah. on his on his gravestone. And, and the trim tab, for folks that don't know, is the small tab on the rudder that allows the rudder to move easily, which moves the big ship. And, yeah. and you feel very much like I am in the presence of a trim tab uh, <laughs> right. today because yeah. you've done uh, so much, so much work pushing things forward. So thank you so much for, uh, for, ha for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Hopefully um, someone listens to this and says, hey, this is possible. <laughs> I think that that may, may be a result. I, I hope very much as well. Thank you okay. so much, Carlton. Super. Thanks a lot. Take care. Bye-bye.